If you would please turn in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians as we continue our study in that book. And ask you to stand for the reading of God's word this morning. I saw Robbie in the hallway. I said, would you like to preach today? He said, in the Baptist church, they do that sort of thing. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Please be seated and please go in prayer. Pray for me. As I would preach this text, pray for yourselves as you sit under the proclamation of God's word this morning that the Lord would apply this to us. Let's pray. Our God and Heavenly Father, we are needy people. We pray that you would help us to remember that we need you every moment that we live. We need your grace, O God, to be obedient. We need your help, O God, to bear up in trials. We need your presence, our Lord, uh, to deal with uh, the temptations as they come our way. And we certainly need, O Lord, your help in loving you and loving one another. We ask your mercies to be upon us in Jesus' name. Amen. If there was ever a moment uh, in your lifetime and in my lifetime as well, when we recognize our need for grace and God's help and intervention, it is certainly in these times. Concerning morality, as a Christian, you must confess, you must acknowledge that the Bible is the rule book for how we are to live our lives. It's the plumb line for how we are to conduct ourselves before the Lord and before one another. And today it seems like that morality is rather subjective. Each man, each woman, each child does what is right in their own eyes. Or like the people of old in Israel uh, when they said to Isaiah, Stop confronting us with the Holy One of Israel. Tell us pleasant things. As the apostle warns that in the latter days will be those who simply want to have their ears tickled. Which means basically that people are saying, do not confront me with my sin, or rather leave me alone, and I don't care what God has to say or what he thinks at all. Well, in America today, 
I read that a third less people claim to be Christians than several years ago. And we can ask ourselves, why is that? Well, there is an individual named Nick Fish. He's the president of the American, Associ- American Atheist Association. He says it's because of the uh, social media. Uh, that people are emboldened now, uh, that the atheists have come out of the closet, so to speak, because they have others who will support them in their non-belief. Robin Blumner, president and CEO of the Foundation for Research and Science, says it is because of the millennials and their wisdom and their reasoning is much improved over what went before them. Could it be also that in our own day and age there is what I have termed bubblegum theology? You remember bubblegum music? Yummy, 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 I got love in my tummy. <laughs> the Ohio Express and then the Archies, sugar, sugar. Uh, these songs were geared for young children and young teenagers, and they were musically flat. They were not imaginative. Uh, their lyrics were rather juvenile and repetitive. There was no sophistication in those songs and that music. Well, bubblegum theology is a theology where it presents to us uh, a celestial Santa Claus who wants us to be happy above all things and wants us to uh, have whatever it is that we want that makes us happy, a bubblegum theology. And it is tainted so much so. It's a very self-centered theology. If you listen to a lot of the sermons that are preached today from some many churches, not all, but many churches, then it's all about me. It's all about what I want. It's all about what I desire in my life. And little has at all, if any, to do with the desire to see God glorified in our lives. Could it be because of that type of theology that is being administered to people that they're taken up and they realize it's false? It's baseless. People want to have heaven here. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. Uh, it is that in this life we will experience trials, we will experience difficulties. And the church has gotten so materialistic in so many ways that it's a gimme, gimme, gimme mindset. And the gospel simply is not having an impact because in so many cases the gospel is simply not being preached. Could that be the reason for lack of interest in the things of Christ? Because the church is so taken up with the things of the world. It is impossible to experience an idyllic life in this idiotic world. The world's idiotic because it is so full of sin. Satan has so much impact and influence in our world. And so evangelicalism is a spiritual uh, materialism. And what is important most of all is acquiring the world's goods more so than Christ. Could that be the reason that belief in God seems to be down? A poor substitute indeed, a pitiful substitute of the things of the world compared to what we gain with Christ and what we get in the gospel of the Lord Jesus. Well, what about you who are here this morning? All of you have an interest in the things of God. Otherwise, you would not be here. 
But do you live your life as a practical atheist? And you may say, how dare you say such a thing to me? I go to worship. I teach. I do all kinds of activities in the church. And I would remind you that pagans can likewise preach even. And so I am not interested at this point in your religious activities. I have in mind what Paul has in mind here, and it's this, that have we so been gripped by the gospel that what Paul writes here in first, the, the Ephesians chapter 1, in these first few verses, that that defines who you are. And though we live our lives in a circumstances, in a situation where it seems like God has let go the reins, of justice, he's let go the reins of control, and it is that Satan is running the things all around us. Do you see it like that? Well, the text here causes us, calls upon us to look at the big picture. What is the ultimate end for the Christian? Well, he says here, he tells us here in verse 10, uh, and as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. This moves us forward to the consummation when Christ will be revealed and when all things will be brought under his control without question, without doubt, without debate, without challenge. That's what we look forward to as God's people as those who know and love and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for their own salvation. Joe Williams, I mean, Hendrickson said this about this text. He said in the verses 1 through 6, we learn from this that the Father takes special delight in planning whatever must be planned in order to bring about the salvation, full and free, of men who had plunged themselves into misery and ruin. And then again, Paul's attention has shifted from heaven to earth, from past to the present, and in a sense, from the Father to the Son. It is in these early verses we read about the, uh, the why, God's predestinating purposes. In this other verses that we look at this morning, 7 through 10, we look at the how. Alistair Begg, I listened to his, one of his sermons. He had two sermons on these verses. And he said that uh, this is better left unoutlined, which is peculiar to me because he outlines as a part of his strength, his outlining. It's easy to follow him. But he said that this is just so rich. He said, this is really one sentence until verse 14. He says, Paul is so overwhelmed by a sense of who God is and what God has done that he just continues on. Praising God, glorying in the Lord Jesus Christ for the work that Christ has done on our behalf. And it is that I can't do that. I have to have an outline. And so with apologies to Mr. Begg, this is my outline for these verses. And uh, bring before you that we need to keep in focus uh, the accomplished work of Christ in this ultimate administration because it is there uh, that we don't look at the minutiae, but we look at the final goal that's going to be taking place. And we have to hold to the fact that we believe that's going to happen. It's a confidence that we have 
that Christ is going to return, the dead are going to be raised and glorified, and will be with the Lord forever. Three things, the cost of redemption, the wisdom in redemption, and the goal of redemption. Well, in the first place, the cost of redemption. And I had Charles read that this morning from the book of, of Genesis. Uh, what is redemption? Well, in Exodus 6, 6 and 7, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm, with great acts of judgment. The Old Testament prophet of prophets, Moses. The Lord said this to Moses, that Israel was going to be brought out, redeemed, if you will, from Egypt against irrepressible odds. Israel had no chariots, had no weapons. They had no army. They had nothing that one would use to engage in battle. And yet they had the unbeatable force of God. God's promise is to redeem his people by blessing them from captivity and setting them free came to pass with what Charles read a moment ago, the Passover. God's people came out victoriously. Redemption uh, is always connected to promises. And what was pictured there in the Passover comes to reality of what Paul, Paul talks about here in the text. By the work of Christ, we are redeemed. By the work of the Lord Jesus, we are set free from the burden and from the power of sin and death in our lives. So the necessity of it is that we were people under the power of a condemnation and sin. Uh, in Genesis 6, 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and the every intention of the thought of his heart was only evil continually or only evil all the time is what it says more directly in the Hebrew text. This does not describe, this does not indicate that the people that Moses refers to here were evil through and through. But they had no interest in God. They had no interest in the things of God. None whatsoever. Romans 3.11, you say, that does not describe them. Well, it does describe you. Apart from grace, it certainly does describe every one of us. It says in Romans 3.11, there is none righteous, no, not one, no one understands. No one seeks for God. That's not to say that there is no such thing as a religious people who are outside of faith. The world is full of religious people. We are, as you know, religious by nature. And so we worship something. What do we worship in our own day and age? What do we worship in our country? Is it not technology, perhaps? Is it not the strong desire to live and live forever? And we look to science and technology to enable And I'm not down on science and technology. I've got a fake hip. I'm thankful for it. If I didn't have it, I couldn't walk. Well, some of you may remember how I staggered around here, struggled to get from one place to the other. Well, I've got a, I can go now. Not as good as I used to be able to, but nonetheless, I, I can maneuver now. So I am not against technology and science and improvements that come our way. But we have to first and foremost trust 
in Christ. And there is where our confidence and there is where our hope must be always in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so by nature, we are held under this captivity, as it says here, there's no one who seeks after God, no, not one. And we recognize that there's nothing that we can do to break the bonds of lawlessness by our own effort. We cannot read enough scripture. We cannot pray enough prayers. We cannot sing enough hymns. We cannot attend attend enough worship services. How easily we fall into the false notion that uh, if we are involved in religious activity, somehow and in some way, uh, it opens God's door to, to heaven a little bit wider for us. Somehow and in some way, it adds to our, our salvation. And you know from Scripture that is simply not true. We are held bound by the shackles of sin and death, and there's nothing that we can do to break free from it. And think about uh, this. Sin is a dreadful companion. Is it not? Think about it. It promises us happiness. It gives us the impression that if we have this particular thing that we so terribly desire, then we will be fulfilled. That's exactly what happened in the garden with Adam and Eve where they were promised wisdom and knowledge. And you know the disaster that turned out to be. It is then the reality of sin is horror. It spoils marriages. It ruins friendships. It breaches, brings breaches between parents and their children. It convinces some that if they want to be among the enlightened of the world, the intelligentsia, that they reject the gospel, they reject Christ, and then they will truly be wise. That's what the world has to say to us. Cast off Christ. It destroys, with a capital D, it destroys churches. Sin ruins churches. Sin unconfessed. Sin undealt with ruins churches. That's the power of it. And how Satan loves to see churches fold. How Satan loves to see scandal in the lives of pastors or in the lives of the officers. He delights in the ruin of what Christ has died for and what Christ has redeemed. Sin is the worm that eats the heart out of all of our comforts, the venom that embitters us against God in the midst of our trials. It is we become angry with God for what he has taken from us or what he has refused to give to us. Sin is behind all of that. And how we can be so deceived into thinking our decision is right and good and proper. When all the way along, God says no. Well, there had to be a price paid. Paul deals with that here in this text. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. 
This is the reality of redemption accomplished. As Charles quoted the title of that book a moment ago, Redemption Accomplished and Applied. Well, here is the accomplishment, the true accomplishment of our freedom. I want to read this quote to you. By the shedding of blood, this has to do with the sacrifice. The sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ as he died in place of, instead of, you. Again, let me read this to you. This is from Thomas Mann. This is full satisfaction given to divine justice and the foundation laid for pardon in the death of Christ. If God will pardon sin, there must be some course taken to keep up the honor of his justice and the authority of his law, or else the government of the world could not be kept. God is not to be considered as a private man who forgives the wrongs done to him, but as the judge and governor of the world. Sin is a disobedience to his law. He that offended God as lawgiver shall be punished by him as a judge unless some course be taken. God will be known as righteous. His law and government cannot be brought to contempt. Therefore, sin must be punished. There's the hymn that says, you who take sin but lightly. Think of what it costs for you to be declared righteous before God. The death of the Lord Jesus Christ, that's what it took. The necessity of the death of Christ was a violent death. Hebrews 9.22, indeed under the law, almost everything is purified with the blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness for sins. There it is, that sacrificial life of Jesus given up to accomplish redemption. And you see, after it was accomplished, after Christ had done this work, these words should stir your heart. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. When was the last time you sinned against the Lord? If you're thinking, I haven't all day, you're wrong. You're deceiving yourself, and that is a sin. When was the last time you sinned against the Lord? You know, a lot of times the, 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 when people are getting ready for worship, that's when things get the worst. People are lagging behind. People aren't getting ready. They're going to be late. It's somebody else's fault, but yours, not yours. And so you kind of get angry and you blame other people. When was the last time you sinned against the Lord. But the wonderful thing is, because of what Christ has done for us, He forgives our trespasses. There is nothing you can do. Listen to this. There's nothing you can do to separate yourself if you're a believer, if you're trusting Christ from God. Nothing. Jesus said in John, I hold you in my hand, no one can pluck you out of my hand. Well, uh, the response to this then should be a response of love for the Lord. Again, Thomas Manton, listen to this. How can I love a God which I think will damn me? How can I love a God which I think will damn me and may probably do it? Our turning to God must be by love. And our living to God and for God is carried out by love. But how can I come to him who seems so unlovely to me, therefore God, to draw us into this amity 
and holy friendship will be represented as willing to pardon and save us, and that in such an astonishing way that more cannot be done to express his love. Romans 5, 7 through 9, For one will scarcely die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved from his wrath. And he goes on to say, what a high expression of God's love to pardon us from our sins. Is the gospel mundane to you? Is the gospel something that you take for granted, really? Is the gospel something that you've just grown up with and then therefore it's lost something of its treasure? And then we fail to really grab on to what Paul is saying here and what Thomas Manton says here. Our response to the gospel is one of trust and one of love. That we love God because of his love for us. And we know it is of his grace, as he says here in the text. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. You know that definition of grace, unmerited favor. Well, here, great grace is seen that God provides for us exactly what we need. God does so provide for us when we are most unworthy of that provision. And God gives us the grace to be obedient to his commandments after he has saved us without regard to the lack of our goodness. The Apostle Paul really understood this. The Apostle Paul was one, as you know, who was persecuting Christians. What a change we see in the life of this man. From one who was on his uh, intent on destroying Christ and his church to one who was willing to give his life for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. Paul understood God's grace. Paul understood the value of that grace that took him from being a man who was bound, not for heaven, but bound for hell, and to one who would be without hope, and to one who would live his life in misery throughout eternity, to one who now was a defender of the gospel, a defender of Christ, and who was bound for glory. I love what he writes in Second Timothy. At the end of that, when he knows he's going to die, when he says, the Lord stood with me. Everyone abandoned me, but the Lord stood with me. And he doesn't believe that somehow and in some way he's going to be delivered from death. That's not what's going on with the Apostle Paul. He says, God was great, gracious to me. He was faithful to me in that I did not recant the faith. I stood in there and I continued to trust and I continued to rely upon God's grace in the presence of Christ in my life. And so that when it came time for him to die, he died bravely. He died with confidence. He died knowing that his sins were covered by the blood of Christ. And as Paul says, 
that he was going to be with the Lord. For to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So we don't have any reason at all to fear death as believers. No reason whatsoever. I appreciate R.C. Sproul's letter that he sent out, uh, that he certainly wrote before he died, but he sent it out when it said that if he was afraid to pray for him. How will we face death? The last thing, very quickly, is that um, he lavished upon us all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. This is the wisdom of the gospel. This is the wisdom that brings life to us. This is the insight that enables us to see and comprehend that Christ is God in the flesh, that Christ has died for us on the cross of Calvary, that Christ was raised for us for our justification. That's the wisdom of the gospel. And it is through that wisdom that God has given to us that we have life in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have taken away from us all dread of death. How much confidence do you have as you live in these days if you watch the news? I know some people have quit watching the news. I don't blame you. You listen to things that are going on. I love what, uh, again, what um, Alistair Begg said about our focusing on the hearing now rather than looking forward to the consummation. We deal with a lot of unpleasant things here in this world, do we not? And we can become overwhelmed and we become discouraged. But if we remember that the day will come when Christ will return and all things will be made right, that gives us confidence, it gives us courage to continue on. Do you believe that? Some of you nodding, some of you staring blankly. Do you believe that? That's the gospel. That's the gospel. That we look forward to Jesus coming back, the dead and him being raised and being with the Lord forever. This promise is not for everybody. We do not believe in universalism. This promise is for the believer. So as you sit here this morning, the question is not, are you religious? Everybody's religious this year, right? The question is, are you trusting Christ for your salvation? It's to those that belong these promises, who are looking to Jesus through faith and repentance. As Christians, we are to give ourselves to learning and to obeying to delve more and more into this great wisdom that God has given to us and to rejoice before him for his love. Let's pray.